Chapter One of Esther Reed's Namesake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Esther Reed's Namesake by Pansy. Chapter One. What's in a name? No, my name is just plain old-fashioned Esther. E S T H E R. The E S T E R was a fad of my respected namesake, was she? No, I'm the namesake, of course. Father tried for it, in fact he struggles at it yet, in writing, but it made life too strenuous, and mother and I gave it up. We think it that way, you understand, but for everyday use it simply had to be Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R. The speaker was a grey-eyed, plain-featured, plainly-dressed girl, with nothing especially to distinguish her from a hundred other girls, though there was a look in the gray eyes that suggested reserve force. She sat on the upper step of a side porch, and on either side of her were girls of somewhere near her own age. They were in street attire, and carried the one a bag and the other a strap, laden with books. The unmistakable student air breathed all about them. They were, in fact, college girls, and, Saturday though it was, had just come from some class function. Esther had reached her stopping place, and the others had lingered for a friendly visit such as they occasionally of a Saturday treated themselves to. They were continuing a discussion that had been suggested by the name of one of the girls who had left them at the last corner. People ought to wait for their names until they have reached years of discretion, and then be allowed to name themselves. There would at least be a chance that they would be better pleased with the choice than they are now. Who ever saw a girl that liked her own name? Besides, they are so liable to be misnomers. Do you think, for instance, that I could have been idiot enough to name myself Blanche if I had been given the opportunity? At this word her companions turned and deliberately surveyed the dark-haired, dark-eyed, unusually dark-skinned speaker, then laughed carelessly. I am very well satisfied with my name, said the fair-haired girl on Esther's left. Oh, that's merely because you are taken with the sound of it, the brunette answered quickly. Faith Farnham pleases your taste for alliteration, but it doesn't fit you a bit better than mine does me. Everybody knows that you are a born skeptic. I'm not absolutely certain that you believe in anything. Oh, yes, I do. I believe in your frankness, for one thing, and in Professor Sartwell's sarcasm, and, well, several other things. I ought never to have been named Esther, I'm sure of that, said the central figure, in gloomy tones. I have told father so scores of times. It is a continual disappointment to him to have me dropping so far below his ideals and his idol. Was it your father's sister you were named for, Essie? Oh, no, no, indeed. It was a young woman whom my father knew when he was a little boy, the grown-up sister of his boy friend, and she died when he was still a little boy. But she must have been a very wonderful person, for she left her impress on my father to a degree that is simply astonishing. Mother never saw her, yet she knows volumes about her. She has to, you see, because father has talked of her so much. I am honestly sorry for him. It is a terrible pity that he hasn't other children. He lavished all his hopes of rearing a second Esther Reed upon poor me, who was born for the purpose of disappointing him. You may laugh, girls, but you have no conception of what a life it is, 
this being expected to reproduce a character that is as unlike yours as it is possible for two creatures of the same species to be. It has simply worn me out, the working at it, you know, without making a single inch of progress. That is one reason why they sent me away out here to school. Her companions laughed. They were used to laughing at Esther Randall's remarks. Even commonplaces had a way of sounding amusing when she gave them voice. But the girl they called Blanche spoke seriously enough in a moment more. She must have been a wonderful woman, as you say, to have made so strong an impression on a mere boy. Didn't you say he was young when she died? Only about thirteen, and he had known her but a few months, yet he has always said that knowing her changed his entire life. I owe her a grudge, by the way. I don't believe that my father would have ever been a home missionary with a starving salary if it had not been for her. Faith Farnham laughed again, but Blanche had still a far away, serious look in her eyes. It must be a lovely thing, she said wistfully, to be able to live so that, a quarter of a century after you are gone, someone will be feeling the impress of your life for good. I should like to live such a life as that. Tell us more about her. How was it that she happened to be so wonderful? How should I know? She died ages before I was born, of course. She was an invalid when father knew her. She had a little brother, Alfred, and he and father were inseparable, so father had an opportunity to see a good deal of the sister. She was the sort of sister who had a great deal to do with her little brother and his friends. Father must have been an impressionable boy, and she wove a spell about him that lasts, that's all. But that is a great deal, persisted Blanche. Judging from what you say of your father, his life seems to be well worth living. Of course it is. My father is one of the few men who ought to be allowed to live forever, because this world needs him. Well, you say yourself that you do not believe he would have been a missionary but for this girl, who died when he was a little boy. I think that is magnificent. As to the missionary part, said Esther, with a toss of her head that meant defiance, I could have found it in my heart to forgive him if he had chosen some other sphere. I think of several that would have suited me quite as well. There, for instance, is his friend Alfred, own brother to the Paragon, who is a merchant prince in New York at this minute. I think my father could have adorned that position, and I know I could have managed my part, Faith Farnham swung her bag of books impatiently. Don't run off the track so. You will not get to the root of the matter. How did that woman or girl do it? That is what Blanche wants to know. She burns to influence a life, and you won't show her how to accomplish it. How am I supposed to know? She was a Christian girl, of course. Yes, of course, said Blanche, still speaking thoughtfully. But I know scores of Christians— have known them all my life, and so have you, and yet... Faith Farnham's significant laugh interrupted, and she spoke not ill-naturedly, but with an air of amusement. You are even one yourself, aren't you, Essie? Esther Randall flushed to her forehead. It isn't necessary to sneer, she said coldly. There are genuine Christians in the world, even though you have been so unfortunate as not to meet any of them. If you knew my father and mother, you would understand what I mean. My blessed child, do you imagine for a moment that I was hinting at anything disparaging to that beloved father and mother? 
I wouldn't be so horrid, even if I thought it, which of course I don't. I know there are admirable people in the world, and I shouldn't be surprised if I found more of them than you do. I'm no pessimist. But I didn't mean to be personal, dear, though I own that my words sounded so. I was merely thinking of a multitude of people whom I know, all labeled Christians, and trying to decide whether I knew one whose profession of that particular faith was making an impression on either himself or others. Oh, nonsense, Faith, I know a good many Christians whose lives match their professions fairly well, and so do you, only you don't understand the subject well enough to know what a Christian really professes. It was Blanche Halstead who spoke, with a note of reproof in her voice that had been awakened by Esther's glowing cheeks. Do you think so? said Faith carelessly. Don't be too sure of that, my child. Perhaps I read my Bible more than you imagine. She had risen as she spoke, gathering her bag of books with a firm hand. I must get home, she said. We have a fearful lesson for our next eleven o'clock hour. Professor Ackers is a Christian without a conscience when it comes to assigning lessons for Monday. How can I be expected to go to church on Sunday and look after my soul, with fifty pages of notes staring me in the face to be absorbed for Monday? Come on, Blanche, my fair one. If we stay here any longer, we shall quarrel. You and Esther are both waxing excited over nothing. It is all on account of that exacting name. I would give over trying to live up to it if I were you, my dear. It makes life too strenuous. Esther tried to make her laugh sound natural and cordial. She was already ashamed of her quick temper, and had no wish to quarrel with those who were her only intimate friends. I am afraid the name does not trouble me much in these days, she said. I gave over any attempt to live up to it before I came here. I couldn't expect to do anything with it among such a set, you know. There, now we are even and can begin again. Shall I see you both tomorrow at Bible class? Not this child, said Faith Farnham cheerily. Didn't I remind you of the fifty pages? No time for obsolete literature tomorrow. Blanche will go, I presume. That is her one concession to the Sabbath of her childhood. Faith, you are simply horrid tonight, said Blanche, in utmost good nature. I told you you ought to have been named something else. Why, Esther, I don't believe I can be there tomorrow. I must be out late tonight, you know, and the Bible class meets at such an unearthly hour. Still, I'll see. It is just possible that I may get around. Reservoir, my dear. Don't try to be too strenuous tomorrow. It doesn't pay. They went down the avenue chatting gaily. They never quarreled, those two, partly, perhaps, because they had acquired the habit of being perfectly frank and giving each other credit for meaning just what she said, never more or less. Esther Randall looked after them with a half-wistful air. Intimate friends though they were, there were sharp contrasts between them. The two girls represented to Esther the pleasant, comfortable world, a world in which people consulted their tastes and inclinations with reasonable assurance that their pocketbooks would be equal to the demands made upon them. And to Esther, who had spent all her life under the dominion of a straightened purse, this state of things meant much, meant more, perhaps, than it should. Her earliest recollections connected with her mother represented a sweet, serious face and a gentle voice that was saying, Esther, dear, mother cannot afford to buy it for you. I haven't as much money as Eva's mother has. You must not expect the same kind of playthings. 
Then later came the attempt to explain. You know, dear, that father, when he decided to become a home missionary, knew that he must sacrifice many things that he would like to do, and he did it very cheerfully, gladly indeed, for the sake of the cause. But one of the hardest things for him has always been the sacrifice of what he would like to do for us, for his little daughter. We must help him all we can, dear, by being brave and satisfied, glad, you know, to join him in sacrifice as well as in work. It was high ground for a young girl who wanted bright ribbons and gay dresses, and later books and pictures and trips, such as others had. She struggled with her unrest and discontent, and did not grumble much, but she had never worn the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, and did not even appreciate its value. Her audible grumblings were chiefly for her father and mother. Why ought they to do all the sacrificing? The work belonged to the whole church, and other people, church members, seemed to have all the nice things they wanted. At least they didn't save for missions. Some of her questions were hard to answer satisfactorily. Perhaps her straightened life was largely to blame for the fact that the girl, as she grew to young womanhood, was in danger of attaching undue importance to money, or rather to the secondary matters for which it stood, luxury and leisure, and opportunity to cultivate one's own tastes and desires. She was not consciously selfish. She believed that she thought first and most of her mother and father, and it was true that no young woman ever set her parents on a higher pedestal or bowed lower before them in reverence than did Esther Reed Randall. She loved, nay, she idolized, her missionary father with a passionate fervor that grew with her growth. As for her mother, the chivalrous devotion which she had from her babyhood watched her father give his wife had been repeated in the child. When she longed exceedingly for the opportunity of other girls, it was always that she might fit herself to accomplish great things in the world, and so be able to give her father and mother what they ought to have. In truth, a rarely good girl was Esther Randall. The hearts of father and mother could safely trust in her. And yet, the girl would have been shocked and grieved almost beyond endurance, could she have known that some of their saddest hours were for her. Mr. Randall had by no means gone blindfolded into the life of toil and privation incident to the work of a home missionary on a western frontier. Instead, he had chosen the work with eyes wide open to its limitations and sacrifices. His choice had been made when he was a mere boy. He remembered vividly the day and the hour when he had said, I will do it for her. He was in his fourteenth year, and it was a stormy winter evening outside, but up in Esther Reed's pretty room all was bright and cheerful. He had gone over, as he often did, to spend the evening with his friend Alfred Reed, and when their lessons were done, Esther sent for them both, as she often did, to pop corn or roast apples on the glowing coals of her hearth, and to watch the play of the lights and shadows, and tell stories and have good times. The Reverend Spencer Randall sometimes leaned back in his stout wooden chair, with his gay patchwork quilt wrapped about his limbs in order to supplement the warmth of the feeble fire in his own hearth, and went over in memory that particular evening in Esther Reed's room. She was lying on her couch, as she nearly always was, when they visited her. She was wearing a bright red wrapper that was bound at throat and wrists with something soft and white. His girl Esther had one nearly like it as her mother could fashion, and when she wore it he called her the full name Esther Reed. 
End of chapter 1. Recording by Tricia G.